0: Well, several years ago, uh, the Indiana Pacers, our national or our state uh, professional basketball team, were involved in an altercation, the most famous basketball brawl in all of NBA history. You may have remembered it. The opponent was the Detroit Pistons, And the event was called the Malice in the Palace. And with less than a minute to go, a fight broke out between players on the court. And once they got it all kind of taken care of, after the fight was broken up, uh, a drink was thrown from the stands and it hit this guy by the name of Ron Ortiz. And now they call him World Peace. I don't get it. I'm just telling you who his name is. Uh, Wouldn't you hate to have world peace, though, if he was like the person? I mean, I don't know. But anyways, he runs into the crowd, and he starts wailing on some people, and a massive brawl breaks out between players and fans. And after everything had died down, everything was done... Five players were charged with assault on the Pacers, and five fans faced criminal charges as well. And the Pacers went from, like, these fan favorites to people calling them a bunch of thugs. And after that, the Pacers brand went down. Uh, The team went down. They couldn't hardly sell tickets. They would have all kinds of nights just to get people to come into the seats, like get a hot dog and a Coke and a ticket for 10 bucks, you know? And this is like a national, you know, uh, NBA team. Well, some of you may not have remembered this, but this was nine years ago. And while very few people kept Pacer pride, my mom actually did during all this. And I'd go, why would you want to watch those thugs? They're not thugs. They're God's children. I'm like, they're thugs, you know? And uh, very few of us are loyal fans that way. Now, last year, though, the Pacers, you know, they made it to the Eastern Conference Championship, almost went to the NBA Finals. And all of a sudden, man, I've jumped right back on the bandwagon again, you know. I'm like, yeah, Pacers, you know. And this whole year, I've been about the Pacers. And uh, they have one of the best records uh, in the NBA. And the fans are back. And the reason I know that is I took my family uh, this week to a game. And, I mean, it was packed. And there were people everywhere. And it was just electric. Because this is the thing, folks. Everybody loves winners. Everybody wants to follow and back a winner. Most of us, including myself, we're just fair weather friends of the Pacers. If they're doing great, we're for them. If not, who cares? But when they start winning, when they start making the playoffs, when they are vying for championships, then suddenly everyone's a fan. Now, this uh, this type of behavior is not just limited to sports alone, but we see it all over the place. Same thing happens in politics, in entertainment, in publishing, in business. And the reason why many of us behave this way, the reason why I believe that we behave this way, is I think because deep down inside every single one of us, it's a human universal need. And the need is we want to worship something. We long to worship someone or something that is bigger than ourselves. It's why we make heroes and celebrities out of ordinary people. If you're a male, guys, you are no different than Brad Pitt. Now, your wife may have a different thing, okay, to say. But on the human spectrum, you're the same as Brad Pitt. Ladies, you are no different than Angelina Jolie. Now, your husbands or your boyfriends might have a different thought, but we all are human. But then all of a sudden we just lift people up in different ways. And I think the reason we do this kind of thing is because every single one of us is wired to worship. And the need is so strong that if we don't find something worthy, a worthy object to worship... We'll worship anything. We'll worship unworthy things. And that's why we focus so much of our time and energy maybe on professional athletes or movie stars or the Kardashians, you know? I mean, we just want to know what these important things are. A week before Jesus went to the cross, he came into this city called Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was a celebrity. He was a rock star. He made Bono, you know, and Beyonce look bad. You know, I mean, he was it. Great crowds followed around him. They worshipped him. Because they had seen him heal many people. They had seen him do miracles. Where he would feed thousands of people with just a few fish and a few pieces of bread. He turned water into wine. He did amazing things. And when he would teach, everybody knew he wasn't like all the other religious teachers because Scripture says he taught as one who had authority and people were laser focused into him. And they're hoping when he comes into Jerusalem that he's going to be their coming king that they've been waiting for for hundreds and hundreds of years. So when he walks in, the crowds pick up palm branches and they start waving them at him. Now, for us, we'd be like, what's up with that? No one does that. But in Jesus's day, if you were going to show, uh, show a sign of honor to someone, you would take branches and wave them and they would put them on uh, the road as he was coming. And we call this now Palm Sunday, which we'll celebrate next week. And this type of reception wasn't given to just anyone. It was given to people who had it all together. The celebrities. The big dogs. Now, some people, when they read this story, they think, oh, that was just coincidental. Or circumstantial. By chance. You know, they came in and, oh, yeah, Jesus showed up. No, no, no. Jesus was orchestrating this whole thing all along. Because he is the son of God. He's God incarnate. God in flesh. And he was orchestrating in that culture what was called a triumphal entry. Now let me kind of take a detour here just for a second. In the Roman world, whenever military leaders, generals, would go off for war, what they would do is they would get a handful of soldiers uh, to stay guard of the city. And then they would go out with a few other soldiers to take more of the land that was around them. And they would be gone for months, sometimes maybe even years. But when they got ready to return, they would send a messenger ahead back to the city. And they would tell them that they were going to arrive. They were announcing the arrival. And so, when this whole military entourage started coming, the very first person that people would see was the leading military general, and he would be riding on this big military war horse. And he would have a laurel wreath around his head, and there would be, uh, you know, flowers all across the road as they were coming. And the horse would be draped in flowers. And when they all came to see the general behind him then would be the soldiers and the officers and the servants and the wagons that were filled with the bounty or all the trophies of all the stuff they had taken from the land that they had conquered. And then at the very end would be the slaves who they had taken and they would be in chains. And the families would run out to the city and they would see their general, their leader, and they'd be like, yes! And then they would start looking around to see if their son or their father had made it through the war. And that is what the Roman triumphal entry looked like. Now Jesus, when He comes to Jerusalem, He comes in triumph. But He comes in a very unexpected way. In a way that we wouldn't think would be very triumphal. Now, the people are there, they're cheering, they're, they're praising, they're worshiping, they're, they're taking these palm branches and waving them. But Jesus decides not to come in on a war horse, but he comes in on a donkey. And you're like, seriously, a donkey? I mean, you're supposed to be the son of God. I mean, what, what's that about? And he humbly rides on a donkey into town. Something you don't expect. Well, you don't expect it unless he really is who he says he is. Because if you looked back 500 years before that moment, God spoke to a guy by the name of Zechariah, who was a pastor, a, a prophet, and he wrote down something that God said was going to happen. And this is what he said. 500 years before. Rejoice greatly, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a what? A donkey. Even on a donkey's colt. You see, the prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus rode into Jerusalem. But he doesn't ride as this military hero, but he rides as the coming king, the promised Messiah, the son of God. And everyone in the crowd recognizes it like, whoa. So just like we've been doing the past three weeks, I want us to take a look at a clip from the movie, The Son of God. And uh, we'll talk about it on the backside. So take a look at this. set out for Jerusalem. Thousands were heading there for the festival of Passover. just entered the city on a donkey. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey. As he headed? Towards the temple. He must not interfere with Passover. God will bring his wrath down upon all of us and Who knows what Pilate will do if the crowds run out of control? Nicodemus, go with Marcus. If he enters the temple, watch him. Do not blink. (laughs) God. in peace for us. You see they thought he was going to come in and destroy Rome. But he came with a greater vision a kingdom vision that would impact the entire world. You see this scene, what it shows is that he didn't just come to impact that day, but all of history as the coming king. And they crowned him and they honored him and they welcomed him as king and they worshipped him and he... (laughs) accepted their worship, and it leads us to our great truth that we want to look at this morning, and it's this, that Jesus will rule as king where he is received as king. That Jesus will rule as king where he is received as king. On that particular day, many people knew who Jesus was. But there were more people that did not know who he was. Because all these pilgrims were coming for this religious festival called Passover. And they were asking, who is this? And finally they're like, oh, it's the promised one. And they worshipped him as king. And it's the same thing today. Whether you have known Jesus for your entire life. Or you're sitting here for the first time. And you're just trying to be open to things of God. This is a safe place to be. And Jesus wants to meet you. He wants you to receive him as king. Because he says that he will rule as king wherever he is received as king. And it doesn't really matter where you're at on the spiritual spectrum of life. Maybe you're just checking out whether or not I even believe there is a God. Or maybe you've been following Christ for many years. Regardless of where that's at, today you can receive him as king. So the question becomes, how do I do that? How do I follow Jesus as my king? Well, first of all, you must do what Jesus says. That makes sense? If you're going to follow a king, you would do what they say. I must do what Jesus says. Now, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture in Luke chapter 19. The Bible's uh, cut up into two different sections the Old Testament, which is the first part, and the second part, which is the New Testament, from Jesus' birth till his return. And there's a guy by the name of Luke who writes a book of the Bible. And he writes from his perspective of hearing stories and understanding what happened to Jesus. And he's a follower of Jesus. And he writes these down. And this is one of the stories that he writes. In verse 29, he says this. As Jesus approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt, a young donkey tied there which no one has ever ridden, untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt, the stocking? They replied, the Lord needs it. Don't you love that response? I mean, I love that. Some of you right now are thinking, you know what? I'm going to go to Sam Pierce Chevrolet. Walk up, find the nicest Camaro that I can find. Say, hey, I went to church on Sunday at the jar. And uh, we were reading this passage of Scripture. I'd like to take it out for a test drive. And you just take it and go. And then you get arrested and they find out. They're like, why did you take it? And said, well, the Lord needed it. You know, folks, it doesn't quite work like that. But you doing something like that is as weird of a request as what Jesus gave to these disciples. He sends two of them on a bizarre mission. Uh, And he tells them, he says, hey, go to this little village down the road and find a donkey and bring it to me. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us which two disciples they were. Can you imagine, though, there's 12 of them. They're all lined up. Hey, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Anyone want to volunteer? Like no one's going to volunteer, right? So he had to call two of them like, okay, you two. We don't know who they were. James, John, Peter, Andrew. We're not sure. Also, we don't know what they talked about on the way to get the donkey, but if it would have been me who had been chosen to go get the donkey, I would have been like this. You really think we're supposed to untie somebody's donkey? You think that Jesus, maybe he knows the owner. I bet Jesus is playing a practical joke on us. You know, we get down there, we try to untie this donkey. Ah, I just wondered if you guys would do it. You know, I might be like, you really think they're just going to let us walk off with this donkey? What if we get there and we start taking the donkey and it gets violent and, you know, someone takes a swing at me? Somebody takes a swing at me, I'm taking a swing at them. What about you? Yeah, me too. I think what I really would do, I'd go with the person and be like, man, this is going to be great, we're going to do this for Jesus. Get all the way up to where you have to untie the donkey and go, I'm not feeling well, you take it over, you know? I mean, it's, I think a lot of us, when we read the Bible, maybe some of you are new to all this, and so... Whenever you read it, you might think it's like a play. Like all the characters know what's going to happen. They didn't. I mean, they had no idea what was going on. How this thing was going to turn out. And yet, there were two of them that said, you want us to go down to the town and untie a donkey and tell someone the Lord needs it? Amen. A simple act of obedience... And yet it brought tremendous glory to God. Verse 36. He gets on the donkey. As Jesus went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down, the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the streets just like start erupting with shouts and cheers and waving of palm branches. And they lay down their coats. Other writers tell us they lay down their coats. They lay down other palm branches for the king to come. And it seems like everything's going well. The triumphal entry sounds so great until the scripture says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. In other words, Jesus is saying this is a moment. Like, this is a moment in history like no other moment will ever happen again. It's once-in-a-lifetime moment. You see, since, since the very beginning, when God created everything, all of creation had been waiting for this one moment. And if we don't accept and acknowledge who Jesus really is, then something will just burst out. It cannot be contained. Something is going to shout out if we don't. You see, when God sent his one and only son from heaven to earth, he didn't have like a plan B. It wasn't like he did all this and goes, well, if this doesn't work, we'll go with a different plan. He only had one plan. It was plan A, plan A only all the time. And the plan was, Jesus must be worshipped and people must do what he says. Now, just in case some of you are having some fears right now. Maybe you're here for the first time. Or maybe you've been here for a while. I'm pretty sure that he's not going to ask any of you to go steal a donkey. Okay? Okay? So you don't have to freak out about that. He's not going to ask you to go steal a donkey or something like that. But God might ask you to do something. In fact, I have a feeling that with a crowd this size, that there are some of you who are sitting there today that you've already sensed God asking you to do something. It's between you and God, but you know what it is. Maybe He's asking you to forgive someone. Maybe it's an ex-spouse. Maybe it's your mom, maybe it's your dad, maybe it's a coworker. But you know that you need to make it right. You sense it. Maybe He's asking you to help someone a neighbor, a friend, somebody else, to step out and to help them. Maybe He's asking you to give something up. Maybe He's asking you to take something on. Maybe He's asking you to say yes to something. Maybe He's asking you to say no to something. Maybe today you're sitting there, and you didn't know this when you walked in, but you have sensed while you've been sitting here, you will as you uh, are here a little bit longer, Now, God's asking you to follow Jesus, to receive him, to say he can be my king. I don't know everything, but what I know today, I want to follow him. Whatever it is, I don't know what it is for you, but the choice is up to you. Will you do what Jesus says to do like those two disciples did 2,000 years ago when they said yes to going to untie the donkey? Or will you ignore him and choose simply to do your own thing? Or even worse yet, to be honest, is to walk away and just never to do anything that he asks you to do. Again, the choice is up to you. So the first thing is to do what he says. The second step to follow Jesus as king is to feel what Jesus feels. To feel what Jesus feels. Let's look at the next part of this story in verse 41. It says this, As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, You see, something happened on that ride that sometimes we overlook. In fact, people, many people, they never even see this part of the story. It just kind of runs by them. Because it's so easy to kind of get caught up in the crowd and to see them waving palm branches and the donkey coming in and Jesus smiling and people worshiping that... You let this little detail go by, but I want to encourage you today. Don't let it pass by this morning. Verse 41, it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he, what's the next word? What? He wept over it. Now, I did a little uh, word study search this week, and that word wept signifies something much more than just a person who's crying or having tears. But this word has this sense of a soul wrecking, a gut wrenching, sobbing. Like when you've been to a funeral of maybe a parent or a loved one or a child, and you are just filled with grief. And you're sobbing at the grave. In other words, Jesus was there, con- he was crying uncontrollably. But the question is, why? Well, he must have been crying because he knew that he was going to a cross. and he was going to experience the pain and the torture and the suffering and the blood loss that was going to happen with that. He he must have been crying because he wasn't going to be able to see all of his friends anymore. He, he was crying because he, he must have known that he was going to die. Maybe he was crying because he was going to be separated from his father for the first time since the beginning of creation. All those would be rational things to think, but that's... None of them, none of those are why He's crying. Rather, the reason why the Son of God, the God in flesh, was weeping over this city, the city that He came to save, was because Jesus knew something about that city and about His people that nobody else in the world knew. Because He's God. He's God's Son. And... What he knew was that in 35 years or so, the Romans would ransack Jerusalem. They would burn down the temple and everything in it, the most holy ground. And they would tear down and they would kill everything that was around that was Jewish. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're like, well, how do you know that bunch? Archaeological digs have happened to show us this. Roman records, not the Bible, but Roman records show us all historians, even those who don't believe in God, believe that in 70 AD, one million Jews were killed in that year. 2,700 people killed every single day. And we know that there were 500 each day that were chosen to be crucified on crosses so that when Jews walked by, they would know that Rome was their only God. And so when Jesus comes to the edge of the city, He's weeping because... He already knows. He sees this prophetic image of what's going to happen to his people. Now, everyone else on that day was having a party. They're taking palm branches and waving and cheering. Yeah, Jesus, you're the coming king. But Jesus stops. He's filled with compassion. He wept. He cried. He sobbed over the pain and the hurt that these people were going to experience in just a few days short years and so I want to ask you a a question this morning it's a convicting question but it's a question that only you can answer and the question is when was the last time that you cried over someone else When was the last time that you saw someone's life heading in a direction of destruction and you knew that it was going to end and you wept and you sobbed and you cried over that person? Several years ago, uh, I was invited by a guy here at our church named Jamie to go play golf. And uh I need as much help with my golf game as I can get, so as many times as I'm asked to golf, I try to go, and so I said, "Yeah, I'll go." He said, "Well, I'm going to invite a couple of buddies uh, to come as well." and I said, that's cool." and so uh we get to the golf course and we start playing, and you get to know people pretty well when you're you know walking a golf course for uh you know three or four hours, and so uh I kind of just got a conversation going with one of the guys and found out his name was Jared. And by the end of the 18 holes that we golfed, I found out that he had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and that uh, typically the doctors will say from diagnosis to death, it's a very aggressive pancreatic cancer, that uh, the lifespan is seven months. And so we're done with the golf game, and I'm like, man. I get in my car, and I remember just praying that, God, you do something miraculous. And our church started praying, and several churches in the community did. And um, a miracle happened. Uh, His cancer went into remission. It rarely happens with pancreatic cancer. But it did. And uh, I learned about it through Jamie, and I was excited, and I lost contact with Jared, had not really talked to him at all. Every once in a while, maybe you do this, you know, a person's uh, face will come to your mind. You just, like, lift up a prayer. You don't know why. And so that was kind of what I did for he and his family. And about four years went by, and uh, I got some tickets to a Colts game. And so I asked Jamie, I said, hey, you want to go? He's like, yeah, I'll go. He's like, oh, I'm going to invite... Uh, my uncle to go as well and I'm like, yeah, that's cool and uh, so we get to the day before the game, he goes, my uncle can't go I, I'm going to invite somebody else, is that okay? and I said, yeah guess who we invited? Jared and I said, okay, that's cool, but if they if they want to come, they got to come to church on Sunday you know, pastors, a coach ticket will do a lot, a pastor won't do much you know <clears throat> So I said, well, if he wants to come, we leave right after church. So he has to come to church. And he's like, OK, he so I'll, I'll go. And Jared showed up and we got in the car and it, uh, we're never on time for a one o'clock game. So, you know, I go quickly and <laughs> pray that the Lord is my shelter during that time. And so we, we get down there. We have a great time. Everything's going good. And... Uh, We come back, and the next week came, and I didn't have a Colts ticket, so I wasn't expecting Jared. And all of a sudden, Jared came, but he didn't just come by himself. He he came with his family. And then he just kept coming and kept coming and kept coming and kept coming, like all the time. And he was growing, he was serving in some ways, and he was growing in this relationship with God. And uh, I just started praying every single day that uh, that he'd come to Christ, that Christ would would be his King. And time passed, but the cancer didn't, and the cancer came back, and it came with a vengeance and uh, none of the chemo or radiation was working and and Jared's body just deteriorated. And uh, a week before he died, I had invited him to go to Bob Evans. And uh, we went to Bob Evans and we're sitting down at a table and... um, I said, Jared. I wrote these words down because I'll never forget it. You know how sometimes something happens in your life and you never forget it. It's like you could relive, you could relive it right in that moment. I'll never forget this. And I just told him. I said, Jared, you know I've always been upfront with you on this whole God thing. He's like, Yeah, I know. And I go, Man, I love you. And I was like, you know, it's a guy, so I'm like, I don't love you, like, you know, in a weird way. I I just love you. He's like, yeah, okay. And there's been two guys in my life that I've said this to. And one's here today. It's not. And I said, I don't want to go to heaven without you. And he said, Well, Chris, I want you to know, first of all, I'm not mad at God. I'm really not. And he said, I pray. He goes, I pray. I never pray for myself. I always pray for other people. But I want you to know, Chris, you know, I want to be honest with you. I've never felt anything from God whatsoever. I'm not opposed to him. But I just want you to know, I don't believe in him. And I remember leaving from Bob Evans that day and I got in my car. And I started driving away, and I just started like weeping and sobbing. And it got so bad that I had to pull off the side of the road. I was just so out of control. I mean, this, was, this wasn't just some guy. This was my friend. This was the person I was praying for every single day for months on end. And now my prayers were not going to be answered. And a couple of days after that Bob Evans breakfast that we had, he was admitted to Ball Hospital. And um, I remember going to visit him, and they had him so hyped up on pain meds because his pain was so great that he was never coherent. I remember one time, I just took his hand, and I, I just started praying, God... I'm not asking anything except that you'd let him wake up enough so that I could share with him the love of God and that he could accept Christ as Lord. And I got a phone call one night and Jared had died. And I went to the hospital. I was with the family And I remember leaving in my car that day just sobbing and weeping over my friend. Folks, when was the last time your heart was so broken? So wrecked? Hurting so much for someone else who was disconnected from God? who was wandering, who was searching, but they're disconnected? When was the last time that you saw a neighbor? You know, the neighbor in the neighborhood that no one really likes and whatever. When was the last time you thought, that's a child of God, and you wept over that person? When was the last time when you saw a coworker who's going through a horrible divorce and the kids don't want anything to do with them and... Their work is suffering and everyone thinks they're a jerk. When was the last time you saw them as a child of God and you wept over that person? When was the last time you wept over your brother or your sister? When was the last time you wept over your mom or your dad? When was the last time that you wept over your best friend and thought he or she could spend eternity without the love of God? A person who had... Never experience the forgiveness, the peace, the freedom that comes with a new life that comes in relationship with Jesus. Because if you allow yourself to feel what Jesus feels, it will bring a flood of compassion into your life that it will burst out to all of the people around you. So if Jesus is who he says he is... And he is. We are to do what he says and to feel what he feels. And finally, to tell who Jesus is. I must tell who Jesus is. So Jesus comes into... This city and people are cheering and waving palm branches and worshiping him. And he's riding on this donkey and he looks over the city and he weeps and he cries. And He finally goes through the gates and as the crowds are waving and worshiping him and shouting praises to their coming king. This is what happens. The scripture says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was, what's the next word? Stirred. And asked, who is this? The crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Now this word stirred in the Greek, uh, I did a word study this week, is the word sieo. Which means, uh, which we get our word uh, seismic from. Like a seismic earthquake. Maybe some of you read about that in Chile this week. This huge earthquake. And that's what's not the, the clinching part. The interesting thing is that the same word that he rides in on and the, and the city was stirred is the exact same word that when he's on the cross dying... That it says this. The earth shook. Shook is the same word. Stirred. A seismic shift. And the rocks split. The entire city was stirred. And it later was shaken by an earthquake. Folks, that's what should happen to you and to me. And to this church called the jar. If we're doing what Jesus Says, and we feel what Jesus felt, then the whole city of Muncie should be stirred. And not just Muncie, but Delaware County, all of East Central Indiana. Because they're all waiting for, they're waiting to see if this God that you talk about is real. They're waiting to see if He really does care. They're waiting to see if People who fill this church, who sing the songs, and who claim to know Him, are they any different than everyone else? They're waiting to see if the God that is breaking out from the why can be trusted. And the way that they can trust your God is by trusting you. Is the faith that we have going to do anything? They're watching you. They're watching me. And if they see us doing what Jesus says, and we feel the way that Jesus feels for them, they may just start asking, what's going on in a gym at the downtown y? i I've heard about that. There's something stirring. What's this about? Who is it? that you get a group of people to meet in a nasty-smelling gym. There must be something stirring there. There must be something shaking there. You know, Jared asked me all these questions. He sat in one of the chairs probably that you're sitting in today. He asked me these questions, but still he never accepted Christ as Lord as I knew. I officiated at his funeral. And the day before his funeral, his wife came up to me with tears in her eyes. And she said, Chris, he did it. And I was like, Oh man, what'd he do? You know? Like when you get to the day before the funeral and somebody did something, usually it deals with money. You know, they sold everything. You know, I went, I was like, Well, what'd he do? She said, there was a guy who was his friend, who on the day before he died, for some reason, Jared came out and he accepted Christ as Lord and he followed him as king to heaven. Now, friends, I personally believe that only God can arrange circumstances like that. I mean, I just met Jared on a golf course one day. And then I hadn't even connected with him for four years. And then I get some Colts tickets and I invite one guy and he invites another guy and that guy doesn't show up. But Jared shows up. And he starts connecting here at this church and he accepts Christ. And now I know that I'll see my friend in heaven. Now, here's the clincher. Remember the guy that I told you about, the uncle that Jamie was going to invite? A year ago, I'm up here teaching and I look over in this particular area and in the third row there, that guy, Doug, showed up. And he's been showing up and showing up with his fiancée and their lives are being changed. And folks, that's something that only a coming king can do. I'd like to close by asking you guys to pull out this little card that was in your uh, program when you walked in today. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Easter is in two weeks. So if you haven't bought the dresses and the candy and all that, you better get on it, okay? But in two weeks, I believe that God's going to do something amazing and great in this place. And I personally want to make sure that as many people that I know who are disconnected from Him, I want them to at least be invited to this place. And this is the thing, folks. God is counting on you. He's counting on each person in this place to invite your neighbors, your co-workers, friends, family, and to allow them to be introduced To the prophet of Nazareth. To the Messiah. To the risen Christ. To the King who came. And to the King who is coming again. You know, today, if if you're sitting there and you've never taken this step before... To accept Jesus as as the Lord of your life, as the King of your life. I really urge you to do that today. In fact, I have a feeling that if my friend Jared was standing here today, he'd say, don't wait. Don't wait. Experience the joy and the love and the freedom and the peace of God right now for the kingdom of God is near today. So I'd like you to uh, bow your heads and for us to spend a moment in prayer. And if you've never accepted Christ, if you've never made that commitment, I pray that you would pray this prayer just kind of silently to yourself. I'll speak the words out loud, but just in your heart, kind of silently to yourself. And you can just you can just repeat after me. Lord Jesus, my King, I thank you for all that you did on the cross for me. I need you. I worship you. I surrender to you. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. And I believe that you went to a cross and died on it so that I could be forgiven and set free. I ask you to come into my heart and I receive you today as my coming King. If you said that prayer for the first time in your life, with everyone's eyes still closed and heads bowed, I just invite you to just raise your hand just to say, you know what? I don't know everything, but for today, I'm in. I'm in today. Thank you. And now for everyone else in this room, I invite you to just pray this prayer silently. Lord Jesus, my King, help me to follow You and help me to do all that You say. Help me to feel what You feel for everyone around me and give me the courage between now and Easter to invite my neighbors and co-workers and family and friends that they could come And listen about who You are and all that You have done for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.